I was a little surprised when I went back through my notes preparing for a sermon series on Mark that in 27 years as pastor of Corinth Church, I have never preached on Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is such a familiar story, and maybe that's one reason why. I did find one time I preached on Luke's version of this same story, but it was more than 20 years ago. So I think sometimes I tend to say, like, this, people know this story so well, what, I ha- what do I have to add to it? Let me find stories that are not as commonly known. And indeed, this week, when I asked people in my Bible studies, how well do you know this story on a scale of 1 to 10, out of maybe 30 or 40 people, all but one said 7, 8, 9, or 10. So people tend to think they know this story very well, and I did too. And that's why, after a few days, when I get really excited about a story that's so familiar, I want to share with you why this story has fresh impact and meaning for me. And part of it may have to do with the fact that I can visualize some parts of this story better than you might be able to if you haven't been to the Holy Land. Because I know about the town of Capernaum. So sometimes in the sanctuary, I like to set up this whole sanctuary as a map. And if I do that, this area right in front of me is the Sea of Galilee. And then straight down the aisle is the Jordan River. And out the front door is the Dead Sea, which is much larger than the Sea of Galilee. So this is the land of Palestine. And and Capernaum is a small city that's actually right on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So I picture this little marble block, which maybe most of you can't see, as this little town, about 13 acres, they tell us, uh, in comparison to this large sea in front of us, and then the Jordan River in this entire area. Palestine itself is not all that large of an area, but this town is maybe only about 1,500 people. However, it was a very significant town in the time of Jesus. It was significant for a couple of different reasons. In Jesus' own ministry, it became the headquarters for his life. And so when our text begins, Jesus went to the house, or in some translations, went home. This is now his new home. Nazareth, where he grew up, is out that way to the west a little bit, but this is very significant. However, in Jesus' time, it was also very significant politically and economically as well. So politically, because when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, his kingdom was divided among his four sons into what's called the Tetrarchy, which just means four different little kingdoms. And to this side over here, his son Philip had the territory, and to this side over here, his son Herod Antipas had the territory. That meant that when you were going back and forth between the two, you had to go through what we would call customs. And in those times, typically you had to pay a tax when you went from one direction to the other. So this was a significant town for the Romans as well as for the Jews. Now let me show you a couple of pictures from my visit to Caesarea because where we're, the, the perspective of this picture where I took it is, in, uh, is roughly from a church that was built on top of what has traditionally been identified as the home of Peter, one of Jesus' four disciples, who's already one of the fishermen who has followed him. So when you're, when you're standing there looking at it, the, one of the reasons they built a church over top of it is because it has a glass floor, and you can look down to see. So this is not that picture. This is looking across just really a handful of houses, and what's on the backside of that is a synagogue. 
And let me show you a, a different view of the synagogue. This is a 4th century synagogue, the way it's been dated. But they have one little place where they've now realized that underneath it is probably the synagogue where Jesus himself worshipped and taught in the 1st century. So it's kind of ancient, but it's not quite as old as the one that Jesus himself would have experienced. So a little bit more about chapter 1 of Mark. Before we get into chapter 2, let me set you up what's, uh, set, set up what's going on here. Mark, as I said last week, explodes with his gospel with a wake-up call. And John the Baptist appears on the scene and begins preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the throngs begin to come. And then Jesus is baptized uh, by John. And then immediately after that, Jesus is taken into the wilderness for 40 days. When Jesus comes back into this area, back into Capernaum in the surrounding area north and uh, west of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus begins to preach, and I wish we knew more the content of what Jesus said. All we're given is, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. In other words, God is breaking into history, and your part is to be ready, and to be ready means to turn away from your old way of life and embrace what God is getting ready to do, but you don't know what that is. And so from there, in the rest of chapter 1, in this very fast-paced narrative, Mark presents to us Jesus going to one synagogue after another in this entire region where he's preaching. Essentially, that's a summary of his message. But he's also healing people. And it perhaps is because of his healing ministry more than his teaching ministry that he immediately gains celebrity status. So he teaches as one having authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, he's not always quoting some prior scholar or expert. He is an original preacher and thinker and teacher. But when he starts healing people and when he starts casting out demons, people are amazed at his authority. Because of that, whenever Jesus goes into any one of the number of towns here, people throng to see him and to hear him and to have someone healed by him. So Jesus decides at the end of chapter 1 of Mark, I'm gonna, I need some time to get away from the crowds as well, and he goes into more isolated areas. So let me show you one more picture before we put the screen down. This is from a boat on the Sea of Galilee when we were there, but right there you're looking at the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you can well imagine that even though this wouldn't have been exactly like it looked in Jesus' day, there aren't a lot of places to hide. This is not like those Afghanistan caves that you've heard about where terrorists hide and so forth, where you can get in somewhere and nobody can find you. Rather, this area is rather open. And so we learn in Mark chapter 1 that even when Jesus goes to more isolated areas, the crowds come and find him. Everybody is intrigued by Jesus at the end of chapter 1, and wherever he goes, people are going to be. So now we turn the page into Mark chapter 2, and we find Jesus coming back into Capernaum. So he's coming back for the first time back into the towns, and what happens? Exactly what you would expect happens. These throngs of people are going to come find Jesus, and they crowd into the house which most people assume is probably Peter's house. It was somewhat larger than the other homes that they have excavated in Capernaum. They, they crowd around Peter's house. They get inside the door to hear him teach, wonder who's, who's going to heal today. And then they begin to crowd outside the house, and there's such a throng of people that nobody else can get close to Jesus. 
which creates a problem for four men who have decided that they need to bring their friend, a paralytic, to see Jesus. Now, that's the way he's described in our translation, a paralyzed man or a paralytic. In some older translations, he is sick of the palsy. So let me explain that word for you. What this word literally means is para means on the side and uh, lutikos, from which we get like paralyzed, the, the lu part means to be loosed. So part of his side has been loosed. And I think even in their uh, culture and time, they understood that meant loosed from your central nervous system. So he has a neurological disorder that affects part or all of his body. He can't walk. We don't know if he was a paraplegic or if he was a quadriplegic. We don't know if he had cerebral palsy. We don't know if uh, he had Parkinson's disease. We don't know if he'd had a stroke and in some way become disabled. But the word simply means that part of his body has irreversible neurological uh, dis disease and disorder. So he can't get around on his own. So when did this happen? How did it happen? We're not told, but I have a little bit of a guess. Because I think if the man had been born with a physical condition that had created this inability to move or to walk, that he wouldn't have had four friends. Now, I'm somewhat reading between the, the lines, but one can definitely imagine that in their culture, men in particular had to be out of the house working six days a week, all day long, and on the seventh day, they were supposed to rest. And so you certainly couldn't carry anything or anyone on the Sabbath day, which means that if you were in this condition and nobody knew you very well, that you would sort of be permanently isolated from everyone else because they're all busy all through the day, even more so maybe than you and I are. However, if the man in some way had been injured or had had a stroke or something had happened to him, if he already had a lot of friends, then those friends would have said, like, I'm going to be there for you. Whatever you need, I will do for you wherever you need to go. So I'm going to assume that this is relatively recent, that it is at least not a lifelong issue. But here's something else that's very significant about this man and his paralysis. Everybody would have assumed that in some way he was responsible. Now, obviously, he could have been monkeying around with his teenage friends and dived into the Sea of Galilee at some point and broken his neck. Or he could have been doing something else, swinging from a tree branch or whatever, and they would have known it was his fault. But even if it was something that had just sort of medically happened to him, like a stroke or Parkinson's disease or whatever, people still would have assumed that he must have done something to deserve this. Now, certainly even in our culture today, people would say, like, what have I done that all this bad stuff happened to me, right? It's a natural human reaction. But the theological system in his day is played out in John chapter 9, when even Jesus' disciples, after they've been him, with him for a couple of years, we presume, still see a blind man and ask the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he is blind? Right? So this was a common theological assumption. So you need to understand that this man not only is helpless physically, he also carries this burden of guilt and shame about the reason for which he is disabled and he stands out so much from everyone else who's able to be mobile. So he needs friends if they're going to get him to Jesus. And fortunately, probably because of pre-established relationships, he has at least four friends. 
And these four friends say, we've heard Jesus is in town, and he does an amazing miracle, so let's get you to Capernaum so that Jesus can touch you and heal you. So the four friends pick him up on some kind of a stretcher. It's described as a mat, but I'm picturing something that had some structure to it, right? Maybe just a couple of poles or whatever. But they pick him up, and they carry him to the town of Capernaum. And what do they find when they get there? This massive crowd that is, who knows, maybe 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 people deep all around the place where Jesus is. So I would think that at this point, the paralytic is probably saying, guys, I get it. Uh, God did this to me. God doesn't want me to be healed. Like, I'm not worth it. I'm not worth your time. This must be a God thing. I'm not supposed to be healed today. Why don't we just go home? But this paralytic instead has some very persistent and creative friends. It would not have been difficult to get to rooftops. This is not like your neighborhood or mine where all the rooftops are at a sharp angle and where the houses are separated from one another. These homes would have been right next to each other and there would have been uh, sort of uh, probably some kind of beams that went across the homes and on top of that some kind of branches or thatch and then on top of that a layer of mud that could have been 6 or 12 inches thick because that's how you kept the rain out. So it's quite easy and quite stable for these friends to walk across the rooftops and get right over top of where Jesus is, and they can tell that based on where the crowd is all around. But when they get there, they might as well be on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Instead of being separated by waves, they're separated by a huge hunk of mud. So how does it help them? Even though Jesus is maybe five feet below them, they're no closer to him than they were when they started in terms of being able to see Jesus. So one of them says... I got an idea. Let's dig through the roof. And the other three are going like, like, that's crazy. But the idea catches on. We've brought him this far. Let's dig through the roof. And so they begin to do that. And whether they create a three-by-six hole, which is what I've always pictured, where they can drop the man down, or whether they just sort of strap him on his mat and they dig a two-by-two hole and they drop it down there. I don't know what they do, but they get him down in front of Jesus. And meanwhile, can you imagine the crowd? Like it starts with noise up top and they hear digging and then little pieces of dust come through and by the time they finish digging and all that dirt falls through the roof and big clods and large chunks or whatever, people are backing up and the poor paralytic is thinking, now what? Like before, people used to ignore me, now they're going to hate me because I'm responsible for the destruction of this roof and I don't even know what's going to happen. I'm such a lousy guy to need all of this attention. And so then when the man is lowered in front of Jesus, there's this great hush in front of the crowd. And Jesus obviously turns to the man, focuses attention on him, and nobody's saying anything. And what's Jesus going to say next? What he had typically said always at that point when he healed someone is maybe something like, be healed, or get up and take your mat and walk. He doesn't say that. What Jesus says to him is, son, Your sins are forgiven. Now, we moderns don't like that very much because we go like, what's he saying? Is Jesus saying what everybody else said, that this man is paralyzed because he sinned? What a cruel, awful thing to say. I'm going to tell you where I think the man was at that moment. I think a big grin came across his face. A wave, a blanket of relief covers him. And he's going like, that's the best news I ever heard. So this man is thrilled at being loved and accepted when so many in his community would have assumed the worst about him because of the worst of his physical condition. 
So then what happens next is there are some scribes in the crowd. So Jesus in chapter 1 has attracted enough attention that the religious leaders are also interested in what he's doing. And there were many varieties of them. There were the priests and Sadducees who ran the temple. They're mostly down in Jerusalem, uh, 70 miles to the south. But there are also the Pharisees who are lay enforcers of the law, and they tend to roam around anywhere there are Jews making sure people do what the law says. And then there are also people that are variously described or translated as either scribes or teachers of the law or legal experts. And these are the ones Mark identifies in the crowd. So the reason they were that is they were the ones that actually copied the manuscripts of the Bible and then would give them over to the rulers of the synagogue or to the rabbis who taught in their schools. But these scribes then, because they copied the law, they had the hand copies, were considered to be experts in what the law says. So they actually don't say anything out loud. Did you notice that in this story? They don't speak out loud. The text literally says they were dialoguing in their hearts. Okay, so inside of their minds, there's a debate raging over what just happened. And what's going through their mind is basically, who does this guy think he is? Literally, the text says, why this speaks thus. The this is kind of like with scorn and disdain. They don't even put a noun at the end of it. Why this, meaning this fellow, this guy, why this is talking like thus, right? So they're thinking about, that's what they're thinking, and they're saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? Are they right or not? Yeah, they're right. Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus is usurping authority in their minds that does not belong to him. He's blaspheming their thinking. Again, all this is going on inside of their minds. And Luke says, immediately, I would maybe translate that impulsively, instinctively, Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he says to them, why are you dialoguing like this in your minds? Which must have shocked them. I was going to say the choir could be the scribes, but they look too nice. But like he turns to this group of people who are scowling at him, and he's going like, why are you thinking that way? And then he asks this question, which is kind of an obvious question, but it's a powerful question. He says, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, nobody has an answer for that, and the reason they don't have an answer for that is not because it's a difficult question, because it's an obvious question. Those of us who are teachers and leaders and group leaders, we go like, if nobody answers my question, it's either because it's too obscure or it's too obvious. This one is too obvious. Of course it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Nobody can verify whether you did anything or not. You can just debate all day and say, well, I have authority to forgive sins, and who can argue with that? But if you say, take up your mat and walk, you better back it up or everybody's going to know you're a liar and a false prophet. So it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus turns to the man to whom he had already said your sins are forgiven. And he says, get up, take your mat, and walk out of here. And again, I picture a little bit of a suspenseful pause. But then the guy gets up. And I sort of picture him jumping up. Can you imagine if you'd have been in that situation? But he rolls up his mat. That's a powerful part of the story as well. And this time, as he walks through the crowd, instead of him trying to get in from the outside when he had four friends in this big old stretcher and they couldn't penetrate the crowd, this time people part as this newly healed man 
walks out through the crowd, and as far as we know, nothing else is said except people turn to each other and they say, we have never seen anything like this. We are amazed by who he is. So that's the story in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. What does it mean for us? I'm going to suggest to you that it has two primary meanings for us. One is that we all need friends, and the other is that we all need Jesus. Not either or. We don't need friends or Jesus. We need friends and we need Jesus. So first of all, we need friends. This story shows us that this man needed friends, that there's a spiritual significance of his paralysis that really describes every single one of us. For we are all paralyzed, whether we are physically paralyzed or spiritually paralyzed, we are all in need of something we can't do for ourselves. So this man needs Jesus, we're going to get there, but in order to get to Jesus, he needs friends. And fortunately, in some way, either by his own initiative or theirs, there was already a previous, previously established uh, connection, relationship with these friends. But we all need friends. And we need friends who, first of all, believe in us. So this man didn't even believe in himself. I'm sure he felt like, you know, I'm of no worth to anyone in my society. You have to remember in that day, they didn't have the social safety net that we do. They didn't have the American with Disabilities Act that we do. He couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't help anyone. So he felt like, I am worthless. I am hopeless. I can't do anything for me. And he had at least four friends who believed that his life had value. And we all need friends who believe in us. The problem is that uh, when we have friends who believe only in us, then we often substitute the kinds of friends who can be temporary friends. And they may be friends with whom we just have fun and, and uh, we're entertained and we party. So we have a whole culture of people who believe they need friends, but that's all that they need. And the thing is with our culture of prosperity and entertainment, we can find one friend or another in one situation after another. Well, somebody will be with us, and we think we're fulfilling that deep need for friendship. After all, we're all hardwired for it. We were created in the image of God, and because we're created in the image of God, who is eternally in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have this capacity to love and be loved. And sometimes those friends can simply be a substitute, a salve, a temporary uh, friendship that doesn't really meet our deepest needs. Now, this man needed friends who believe in him. We all do. But this man also needed friends who believe for him. And this is that concept that I was describing with the baptism of little Lila. So her parents are bringing her because they are believing for her. Vicarious faith never substitutes for real faith, but anytime you spend uh, praying for someone year after year or even day after day, you're exercising vicarious faith. Anytime you spend believing that someone's life can turn around even though they're in the throes of addiction or some other seemingly insolvable problem or maybe a physical problem like paralysis, you are exercising vicarious faith. And when you keep praying for someone or with someone, when they've long since given up any hope, you are exercising vicarious faith in the hopes that at some point that faith will be turned around by God to change their lives from the inside. So this per, uh, paralytic needed someone to believe in him, but he also needed someone to believe for him. 
And they believed for him so powerfully that they were willing to inconvenience their own routines and take him and find this creative, persistent solution to get him to the foot of Jesus. Because this man not only needed friends, he needed Jesus. Because as wonderful as friends are, there are some, friends, some things that friends can't do for us. And Mark has already introduced us to Jesus who has authority over the demons, who has authority over sickness and disease, who has authority in his teaching, who has authority in the word. And, and these friends had heard all this about Jesus, and they're going like, this man can do something for us we can't do with our friend. He doesn't just need friends, he needs Jesus. And so we find in this story a wonderful picture of how these friends realized that they could be the friends that actually would bring him to Jesus. A couple of people on Friday shared with me uh, the story of the funeral of Dr. Tony Evans, who's an evangelical preacher. His wife passed away this past week, and the clip that was shared with me twice on Friday was a clip of their son, Jonathan, speaking at the memorial service. And how he talked about how we prayed so much for our mom that people would walk around our house like it was the house of Jericho, defying sin and disease and praying for her cancer to be healed. And yet he has this wonderful way of spinning that story and reminding us that whether God heals now or God heals later, God still heals. That God is about life. And sometimes that life is here and sometimes it's life forever, but God is always about life. The truth is that Jesus never does anything the same way twice. So when you say, well, Jesus, you healed that paralytic. Uh, why, why can't you heal um, my friend who is paralyzed or ill or whatever? And Jesus says, not about what I can do, but Jesus never does the same thing twice. Even in the New Testament, he never interacts with the same person, with a different person in the same way. So here's the lesson that comes out of that about our understanding of how we need Jesus. When Jesus says to the crowd, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, that's invisible, or to say get up and walk, that's visible, what Jesus is telling us is that what we see Jesus do reminds us to trust him for what we can't see. What we see Jesus do reminds us to trust him for the things that we can't see. So we know he is at work, but sometimes it's hard to hold on to that. And we say, in, our, in my particular situation, whatever it is, I'm not sure that Jesus is really active. I don't see Jesus as active in this person's life or in my own life. And Jesus says, will you go back and scroll through all the things that you have seen me do? Because what we see Jesus do teaches us to trust him for what we can't see. So this man needed friends and he needed Jesus because of what only Jesus could do. And our greatest need among friends is friends who bring us to Jesus. This past Tuesday evening in our elders meeting, uh, my colleague, Pastor Paul, we were in a conversation and he looked at the board of elders and the other pastors and he asked us a question, which is a rather searching question. He said, how many people can you name who came to know Jesus because Corinth Church is here. So even as pastors and elders, that's a hard question to answer. We don't have a lot of people who come to faith because we're here. We are a congregation that's not so much known for evangelism as for a safe place where people who may have been burned or hurt or struggled at another congregation 
has come, or maybe they've moved to our area, but they already know Jesus. And what they find here is community and love and a fellowship, and they find acceptance, and they find grace, and they find good Bible teaching. And I'm not against good Bible teaching or love or grace, but this question has haunted me all week. Like, why aren't we a church that actually makes it possible for people to come to know Jesus because we are here? Paul made that comment in the context of a conversation we were having about our guest speaker who's coming in two weeks. And the Board of Evangelism has brought in this particular speaker because he is the leading evangelical spokesperson and author on the subject of LGBTQ issues. So what does it mean for gay and lesbian and transgender people to find a home in a church, to be loved in the community? And I'm not sure that we do that very well. Now, Dr. Yarhouse, when he comes, is going to disappoint people who want him to come down angrily on gay and lesbian issues or to come down with full acceptance, like whatever you want to do is okay. He's going to disappoint both of those groups of people. What he's going to do is he's going to teach us what it means to just love people where they are and to try to understand them better. That will be the focus of his Sunday evening workshop on LGBTQ concerns. He's also going to preach on Sunday morning, but he's just going to pick up, uh, not on that topic, but just on where we are in the Gospel of Mark. I don't mean to imply that people who are gay and lesbian and transgender necessarily don't know Jesus. I don't mean to imply that at all. What I mean to say is that in our community of faith, it's kind of hard for people to self-identify as outside of the norm of who most of, our, most of us are and with whom we are comfortable. And if we're going to find ways to reach people for Jesus and introduce them to Christ, it's not just LGBTQ people. We're going to have to find ways to help other people who otherwise would walk into our church and say, there's nobody here like me, and say, but this might be a place where I can explore what it means to know and to walk with Jesus. That's what our story teaches us today. That not only are there times in my life where I need to find people who will help me find Jesus or come back to Jesus when I've begun to lose my footing in faith, but who is it in my life that maybe has given up on friends or given up on Jesus or given up on the church because they really think if I ever went to that church, nobody would love me, nobody would listen to me, it wouldn't make any difference, I wouldn't be accepted. Would you pray with me, please? And I wonder if the Holy Spirit, as I've talked today, has brought to your mind someone who needs to know the transforming power of Jesus Christ, who needs to know that what nobody else can do for them, Jesus can do, and who feels alienated from the people who are closest to Jesus. Would you maybe in your own mind and heart name some of those names and bring up some of those faces before your mind as we pause for a moment of silent prayer? Lord, there are people in our community who don't think they have any friends who think nobody cares about them, who think they are worthless and hopeless, and who especially think there's a gulf between them and you that nobody will invest in to help them to find you and to find hope and life through Jesus Christ, the only one who has authority to forgive sins. So we look to you and trust you and ask you to work in us individually and to work in our community. 
that we might be the kind of people who bring other people to know you through Jesus Christ. And we ask in his name as he taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.